Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Humber College, offering a two-year diploma program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. Welcome to the show. This week on the program, one of my favorite comedy personalities in the world, the great Andy Richter. For years, he was the sidekick on Late Night with Conan O'Brien before he left to do acting in Hollywood. He finally decided to leave the topsy-turvy world of a career as an actor for the stability of a job as the sidekick on the Conan O'Brien Tonight Show. I think we pretty much all know how that went. Among other things, I'll talk to him about what it was like to make the show after they knew it was on its way out. In some ways... It was exciting and liberating, but also sad. But it also made it hard when you actually had to fill in the slots where the jokes go to talk about much else. You know, it's sort of, you know, sitting calmly in a house that's on fire and talking about the day's headlines. You have to pay attention to the fact that the curtains are going up. That's this week on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Before we talk to comedian Andy Richter, here he is on Late Night with Conan O'Brien doing one of their classic bits in the year 2000. Just imagine he and Conan sitting on a darkened stage, flashlights under their chins, wearing ridiculous space hats. Donald Trump will begin dating another attractive tall blonde, Dolph Lundgren. Puff Daddy will again be charged with gun possession, but will claim in court that the gun wasn't real and was merely sampled from the gun of a more talented musician. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on this show is the uh, comedian, writer, and actor Andy Richter. He's probably best known as the longtime sidekick on uh, Late Night with Conan O'Brien and more recently the announcer on the Conan O'Brien Tonight Show. He's also uh, starred in uh, motion pictures, uh, including one with the Olsen twins uh, and one with Robert Altman. Um, he has, uh, uh, he has appeared. <laughs> I was direct. All of that. All of them were directors. Yes. <laughs> he has, um, uh, he's appeared on uh, numerous television programs, including, uh, guest appearances on, uh, shows like 30 Rock and Arrested Development. Um, uh, the show, uh, Andy Richter controls the universe, which was a, uh, critically lauded, but short lived show. Um, Andy Barker, P.I., another critically lauded but short-lived show. A show called Quintuplets, which was less critically lauded. Um, but and longer-lived. Slightly longer-lived. Yes. Um, 
Andy, it's it's a pleasure to have you on the Sound of Young America. Well, thank, thank you. you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you ended up in the uh, uh, Conan O'Brien organization. Low, yes. low these many years ago. Yes. Um, you had had your first taste of show business success with uh, uh, the New York company of the Real Brady Bunch. Real live Brady Bunch. The Real Bunch. live yeah. Brady Bunch, which was a, which was, if I remember it correctly, and it was a while ago now, was actual. Brady Bunch episodes, yes, performed by adults in the roles of children in all in all the roles. No children, just adults imitating the child actors from the show and trying to do it as much like the show as they could. Which I, I it's been a while since I was in college. I don't know whether that's parody or satire, but at any <laughs> rate, we were just trying to rip them off as as and I mean as the show went on because it also. When I first heard about it, I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. And then I saw the first night that they did it. I wasn't in the first production of it. Uh, I was working at the theater. I just started. It was at a theater called the Annoyance Theater in Chicago, which is still there. And uh, I had just started doing shows there, taking classes there. So I was sort of new to it. And it was it was a possibly the hardest I've ever laughed in a theater was seeing the first one because it was full of very, first of all, just really talented comedians, really talented comedic minds behind the whole show. And and it was sort of ideal, ideologically pure at the beginning because they really were trying to, it was like having your, uh, the center of your brain that had been fed junk food before it had any ability to, to acquire any sort of will of its own, your brain, that it just had junk shoved into it. It was tickling that because there was stuff that I would remember, you know, it was just, it was almost like a Pavlovian response. And it was really funny to see these people do this show. As it went on, it got a little bit, it it coincided very nicely with the uh, disco nostalgia, the 70s nostalgia of the, you know, late 80s, early 90s. A kind of nostalgia that quickly became one of the worst kinds of nostalgia oh, it's just, ever. Yeah. It's Significantly still, worse than even even like Happy Days. Yes. It now just feels like gears. Like just that there's <laughs> a gear, the trails behind the main gear that just, no matter what garbage gets squeezed through the machine, it's going to come, trucker hats, it's going to come back again, you know, eventually. But it was, it was, it was really fun. And it was, it was a cash cow for us in this little theater in Chicago. And um, then we did it in LA. Uh, And while I was in LA, I met Robert Smigel, who uh, was a friend of Conan's, was a, a co-worker of Conan's on Saturday Night Live. And uh, when Conan got the job to replace David Letterman, part of conditional to him getting the job or someone that he, you know, it was at the beginning of the deal being made was that Robert Spiegel would be the producer of the show, the head writer of the show. Um, And I had met Robert through a mutual friend who had worked on Saturday Night Live. He said uh, he called me and said, I am going to be working with this guy, Conan. And would you like to meet him and possibly get a job writing here? And I said, knowing that I would get a meal out of it, <laughs> I said, of course. And also at the time, I I had come out to uh, 
Los Angeles to, well, to I had gotten a part in the movie Cabin Boy. Which uh, a, a a movie that uh, is one of the strangest films ever to have been financed with a you know uh, seven di- seven digit <laughs> yeah, budget. Yeah, it was it was a pretty odd movie and a lot of very strange choices, but also uh, very well loved, also <laughs> fairly well reviled by by many. Um, but I had a great part in that that I had come out to L.A. again to get. Uh, I had read for it, and then I actually was back in Chicago. I had left the Brady Bunch and was just had had enough of being Mike Brady. And and you also knew that you could rely upon your success as having been in Cabin Boy to catapult you. <laughs> yes, straight into. At the time that I met Conan and got the job, I was applying for jobs and just plain old jobs, and I'd managed to not have to do that for a couple of years because of touring with this silly, dopey Brady Bunch show. And, I mean, I didn't make a very good living, but I made enough to, you know, rent a studio apartment and buy secondhand furniture to fill it. Um, but I, uh, the day that I got the call that I, I was, I was in fact hired on, on the Late Night with Conan O'Brien show with, I also got a call from a movie theater in Westwood uh, <laughs> to come in and interview about an assistant manager position, which I had been very scared of getting a job at a movie theater and then having Cabin Boy be released in that movie theater <laughs> and be behind the counter selling popcorn and also on the screen. Um <laughs> I did, it sounds I like did, a reasonable it fear. Could, it could it could very well have happened. I think I probably once the movie came out would have had to quit and get a job waiting tables or just something else if if it had gone that way. But I was able to say, "I'm sorry, I can't come in for the interview at the movie theater. I'm going to New York." <laughs> you know, usually when you're uh, applying for one of these gigs, you have to submit a packet. Did you have to turn in a packet? I did. I uh, and I'd never done this before. I, I up to that point, I had been an improv actor. I had done shows in Chicago with uh, the Improv Olympic and the Annoyance Theater. I never did Second City, but these are all sort of, you know, in some ways offshoots, offspring of Second City and the improv institutions of Chicago. Um, and I had never done, I'd never sat down and written anything really, uh, you know, not, not in a real professional way. <laughs> um, so I had to sit, I thought, okay, talk show, what would I, do? I mean, because now I think people are a lot, I don't know whether it's the internet or people just being more attuned to, uh, the ins and outs of show business. Uh, but I didn't know how people got hired at things. I <laughs> I was, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in Illinois, and I didn't know anybody in show business. And going to Chicago and starting an improv, that was it. And we were all at the same space, you know, that's the same sort of level, and nobody knew how to get jobs. And also it's in Chicago. There's no, there's no jobs to get. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no jobs to get. So I uh, I wrote some uh, I wrote some stuff together, 
uh, put some stuff together, wrote some, I don't even remember what the bits were. Did you, you have know? to write like monologue, like 15 monologue jokes and I d- four I don't sketches think I or did something? That. I think I just sort of wrote, what if we, you know, <laughs> had an answer horse or, you know, just, just conceptual stuff just like that. Just basic stuff like yeah. that. The stuff well, you'd see on any talk show. Robert- <laughs> an answer horse. Or- well, Robert told me later that, uh, Conan had enjoyed meeting me so much that he wanted to hire me just based on goofing around with him, which thank God, because that's basically what I've done with him forever. I mean, that's my job is to goof around with him and and my on screen job, my sidekick job just, I think, evolved out of messing around with him around the office and goofing around and him. We complement each other. We sort of run at different speeds, but we have a similar sense of humor. You know, there's, you know, eight feet tall and, you know, eight feet tall and red haired and then sort of square and blonde haired. You know, I mean, it sort of, it sort of worked. What was the first suggestion that you should be on camera? Well, Robert Smigel, once again, came to me uh, the first time that Conan was even going to do a test, a camera test. And uh, and it was in uh, Bob Costas's old later studio, which Bob Costas used to film his show wherever they could put up the flat and the two chairs. And it happened to be in 8H, which is where they shoot Saturday Night Live. His set was up and they said, well, while we got him, let's take Conan up there and put him on camera. And, and from that very first point they asked me to go sit out there with him or Cohen or, or Robert Smigel so just go sit with him and talk to him which because a lot of times in television especially it, you don't have to worry about it from you get used to it if you're doing a movie lighting standing there that's why they have stand-ins because you have to someone has to stand there and stand-ins are of a similar height and similar coloring of the person that they're standing in for because you have to stand there sometimes for three hours while they set lights on you, and for them, and you just have to stand there, and it just they they have stand-ins to keep people like me from going insane, and I <laughs> I mean I get antsy standing in one place for five minutes, you know, so uh, especially if I know I'm being told to stand there, it's more of an anti-authoritarian thing than it is an actual. <laughs> Functional it's a matter of social thing. justice. You're right, exactly. Who are you to tell me where it's to in, stand? In your opinion, right. it's the only way to find justice is for a person poorer than you <laughs> to have to do the exactly, standing. Exactly, exactly. Or else I am going to wander away and find a snack. <laughs> I'm just letting the man know that up front. Um, but so it, it can be time-consuming and boring, so go sit next to him, they said. He, Robert said, just to sort of keep him company. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and writer Andy Richter. For much of the 90s, he was the sidekick on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Here's a clip from this show. It's Andy's birthday in 1993. Of course. Andy, how are you? I'm having a great day. Now, this is, people do not know this, today is Andy's birthday. Yes! Thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday. In fact, Max, uh, why don't you play happy birthday for Andy? We don't have a lot of time, so kind of, you know. Boys, three, four. 
you very much. All right. Over. That's it. I know. I know. I'm not asking anymore. That's my gift to you. Yeah. Yes. That four-second song. I have cake in my pocket that I'm going to eat. <laughs> Don't tell people that. Well, you always have cake in your pocket. <laughs> it's a special cake. It has candles. All right. Um, you left the uh, 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 the first Conan O'Brien show after uh, six or seven years yeah. of doing it. Um, it it's so uh, difficult in the world of show business to get and hold a job. Yeah, as, as you I have found out. Yeah, quite vividly recently. Uh huh. Um, why did you want to let go of that? Was it a it's now or never type situation? A little bit, a little bit of that. Uh, I mean, various things factored into it. Um, number one, being on a talk show was not exactly what I had in mind when I came to Los Angeles. Being a character actor in film parts, being a comedic character actor in film parts was probably the first thing I thought I'd do. And then I thought, well, in television, too. I mean, television... You know, having come from film school, I was sort of focused on film at the time. Um, but then once I got out here, I re- well, you know, TV is here and TV is, there's so much more comedy on television. Uh, I think in some ways I'm better suited to it. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't fully be able to explain that, but it's just, you know, you learn after a while like, oh, in television, I work a lot more than I do in movies. I think I'm better suited to television. You know, it's just sort of the proof is in the pudding in that, as far as that goes. But um, I, I didn't think I was going to be a broadcaster. I didn't think I was going to be an on-air personality. So from the beginning, it always felt a little bit like, wow, this is great. This is fun. This is, you know, it's not exactly what I had in mind. But, whoa, it's fantastic. And it's, you know, I, I mean, it did, I'm... It it gave me a career, you know. It it really, I mean, I'd done a few things prior, but it was the thing that really made the difference. It made anybody know who I was, you know. Anybody that's out there that has an awareness of me, aware of me, because of it, pretty much. So I there was that. There was just sort of uh, also the feeling that I had enjoyed a lot of. Uh, success and I thought it would be that I had actually that I felt in many ways sort of passive I had I had I had been there to get the job and been there to be on the show but I didn't really make it happen in any way and I wanted to see if I could do that um and I also I I was young and I was uh bored I had done I had done the same thing for you know seven years and I had not done anything prior to that besides be white and Caucasian or white and male, you know. I mean, I I, uh, I, I needed to play characters of different races. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, no. I mean, I I was antsy. I I had never done anything that long. I hadn't been married that long. I hadn't gone to anyone's school that long. I hadn't lived in anyone's city that you know. I just I was used to moving around when I. I my schooling is in film. I went to film school in Chicago, and I got out of film school and worked freelance. I never had a job. I worked freelance, and it appeals to me. Everything's always different. You work, you, you know, you work on a particular job, and by job I mean like 
a Kellogg's like a cornflakes commercial. Yeah, you get a gig and then you work it and then you're done and you look for the next thing. And I that I'm suited to that kind of living and I'm suited to that kind of uh that just that sort of change of scenery, you know, that frequent change of scenery. So I was, you know, seven years of doing this same thing. And I also, you know, I felt, and at the time, comedy was doing well. And it, and it seemed, and there were a lot of people that had written on Seinfeld for five minutes getting gazillion dollar deals. There was a lot of comedy being bought for television. And it seemed like, all right, time to try. Time to see if I can do it myself. And I did. I, you know, so I left and I tried to do it myself and... I feel like I, you know, I did as well as I could and it didn't work out for one reason or another and time came, you know, it came back around and Conan said, do you want to work on The Tonight Show? And I was, I'm older and like, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yes, I'd like to go somewhere again and have an opportunity to get bored with being in the same place for too long. It's a luxury I, I, really, I really missed. I got tired of not being anywhere long enough. More with Andy Richter after a break. It's the Sound of Young America from PRI and MaximumFun.org. Hey, what's happening? Mike Schmidt, host of the 40-Year-Old Boy Podcast. Available on iTunes and at MikeSchmidtComedy.com. What's the show about, you ask? I can hear you asking it. That's right. You know what the show's about? Me hearing people talking in their houses as they play me. That's right. Well, if you're playing my podcast or you hear my voice, please know that I can hear you at all times. I'm tapped in like that. I'm kind of like the dog whisperer, but via podcasts. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. So go to MikeSchmidtComedy.com. Go to iTunes and subscribe to the 40-Year-Old Boy Podcast. It's no uh, uh, Sound of Young America radio show but we do use microphones it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guest is andy richter comedian actor and longtime sidekick to conan o'brien he spent many years with conan on the late show but left to pursue other television projects one of those was the very funny and critically lauded sitcom andy richter controls the universe in the show andy plays an aspiring writer whose day job is doing technical writing in this scene, Andy's complaining to his boss and longtime acquaintance, played by Paget Brewster. There's a couple of new additions to the office, one of whom is also named Andy, and Andy's character isn't happy about it. There is a new guy in my office. Weren't you just in here last week complaining about the same thing? Yes, because it also happened to me last week. Still, there's starting to be a sameness to your complaints, which, and I say this as a friend, is getting a little off-putting. Jessica, I'm living like veal. Okay, there is a temporary shortage of office space which may or may not be permanent, but I promise you this, there will never be more than three people in that office unless something changes. Those files for the four o'clock meeting. Hey, Big Andy. I am not Big Andy. Since when? I was never Big Andy. I don't think I'd make something like that up. Look, I was here first. I mean, why can't he be new Andy? Or I'll be Andy and he can be Black Andy. We can't run around calling somebody Black Andy. All right, but still, I don't want to share my office with another person. Weren't you running around last week yelling about the same thing? I told him. Andy Richter on Andy Richter Controls the Universe, which is now on DVD. You, I mean, for a, for a guy who was doing the kind of thing that you were, you were doing, this kind of comic television acting, um, you got a lot of shows on the air. Yeah. Um, and uh, some of them were very good shows. Um, and you were working a lot. Yeah. Um, but at and the same time, there was no, you know, at no point did you become Jason Alexander. No. 
Wait, what does that mean? Well, Jason Alexander is a guy who was on a smash hit television oh, program oh. and became exceptionally beloved for doing that and made right. a bajillion dollars right, as opposed right, right. to just a Oh, I see. You know, oh, I thought you were insulting dollars. him. Not, not, I didn't realize you were insulting me. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that was oh, my objective oh. was to insult you. <laughs> well, it's, well, it has worked. What um, I mean for that is that I really see you shilling for Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> and no one understands why are you doing it. Listen, you I, have all the money that because, is. See, that's the thing is I would. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. <laughs> I really, truly, come on, anybody out there, if if you have a product to sell, just ask me. I'll do it. Um, yeah, no, it was. Uh, it was. I don't know. I I I didn't. I, I well number one, I didn't want to do boring comedy. I didn't want to do just kind of manufactured comedy. I wasn't saying I'm not saying I was above it, but given the option, and it was sort of the way that things just timed out because especially with television, there is a seasonal aspect to it. And what my plan always was, Try and do something of my own, something that I created or something that I created or co-created. Try and get that done. Push that as far as I can. And when that died, jump off of that and step on to the the next thing that was going. Always with some sort of feeling. Like I always was – there was always an aspect of quality control that I was trying to exert. I mean I didn't just go – Oh, well, this looks like it'll sell, you know, which I hear, you know, I hear people say, I have friends who get frustrated and kind of angry and they say things like, like, I'm just writing this thing because it'll work. And I understand it, but I just, I try not to do it. I try, you know, and I mean, there are very commercial not at all highbrow things in my filmography and in in my on my resume and I I'm not a, a you know it's like some there's some jobs some jobs are more fun than others some jobs reward you in different ways and I kind of feel like if you get offered a part in an Olsen twins movie you should just take it right absolutely like, who are you to say no to that I listen that one my manager told me not to take that part and I may offend some NPR viewers here. Because one of the or viewers, listeners here, because uh, one of the main aspects of it is that I had my character had a Chinese accent, had been <laughs> raised by the uh, leader of the Chinese gangs of Vancouver, or no, I guess it was New York because that was in the title. Uh, the like the leader of the Chinese of crime- the parts of Vancouver that look kind <laughs> that of like New sci- York, yeah. But uh, there was a Chinese crime boss. I was her adopted son. So it was in the script that I had a Chinese accent. <laughs> I, and I said to my manager, this is a movie starring the Olsen twins in which I play a criminal, like a heavy, who has a Chinese accent. I ca- how can I pass that up? <laughs> I mean, really, I was like, I was like, when will I ever get the opportunity to do that? I'm going to play like the fat dumb guy. I'll get that one again. But like <laughs> this one is a particular flavor of dumb that I haven't done before. And I, I had a blast on that movie. I thought it was, I mean, you know, it came, it's the Olsen twins 
big screen <laughs> debut, you know, or or I should say feature film debut because they actually have a, a number of feature films. Uh, but uh, you know, it was I don't. That's like when I I I would challenge anyone to say no to that. I would challenge <laughs> the indiest of indies to say, "I'm sorry, I can't be in the Olsen Twins movie and have a play an evil chauffeur with a Chinese accent." It's the sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Andy Richter. He's headed out on tour with his friend and colleague, Conan O'Brien. After parting ways with Conan in 2000, Andy returned as the announcer on the new but short-lived Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien in 2009. Here's a clip from The Tonight Show towards the very end of its run where Andy shares his thoughts about the show ending. Now, um, I, uh, before we continue, I know, Andy, you said that there was something that you wanted to talk about. We've been doing shows for a couple of days since all this madness right. broke out. And I you know, was able to sort of give my opinion about things, but you haven't really had a chance. Well, yeah. I mean, you gave a, a statement the other day that, that was, was great, and it was really a noble statement. And uh, I just wanted to take the opportunity to, to make a statement of mine. You want to make your own statement? That's okay. I think yeah. that's only fair, Andy. Okay. Uh, yeah. Andy, thank you. Thank you. I'd like to take a moment to speak directly to the television industry. Hi, television industry. It's me, Andy. Remember me? Uh, years ago, I came out here after being Conan's sidekick on the old late night show. I wanted to see if I could make it on my own. And relatively speaking, I, I did pretty well. I got to star in a few network sitcoms, and a couple of them were really good. But, you know, they all got canceled. It happens. After a while living like that, you, you start to look for something a little more permanent. So you can imagine my relief when my dear friend Conan asked me to come work on The Tonight Show. <laughs> oh, man, I thought my worries were over. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's The Tonight Show. What show business job is more bulletproof than that? I mean, I was thinking I could count on this thing for like 10, 12 years minimum. But I guess I was wrong. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> Long story short, TV industry, I spent some money. <laughs> I spent a lot of money. <laughs> oh, no. I am, no. I am not even sure where it all went. I mean, oh, no. you know, there's the typical stuff, the... Clothes and fancy dinners. Uh, I, I think I bought a boat. <laughs> think you bought a boat? Uh, I, I think so. You know, you're drunk in the internet. You know, something shows yeah. up from UPS. No, I know. So, TV, whatever you got, I will take it. <laughs> you got an award show no one wants to host? Voiceovers? Phones to answer? You want me on one of those celebrity rehab shows? You name the drug and I will get hooked on it tomorrow. <laughs> Was it odd to uh, go back to this? I mean, granted, you were not sitting on the couch. You were standing behind a lectern on The Tonight Show. Yes. Um, but Although towards the end, I was sitting on the couch. I had slowly made my way back over to the couch, and that's when they canceled us. You just slid, you slid the lectern yes. a couple inches right. each day. He never noticed. Although he did, I did point that out as we were, as we were being 
shown the door. And of course, Conan turned it on me and said, oh, it's all your fault. <laughs> I put you on the couch and then they throw us out. Um, was it odd to go back to doing, I mean, I, I can't imagine it not being odd to go back to doing a job that you did seven years ago and then left or. In some ways it was odd. In some ways it was not that odd at all. And so, I mean, I always, I went back frequently as a guest on, on the late night show and it never, it always felt like I, I had just left it. It always felt like the proverbial bicycle, um, the 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 tonight show it was new because it was a new place and my role was somewhat different in that I was the announcer and that I had a lectern and that it was the tonally the show was very different because it was not it it wasn't and it wasn't on at 12:30 it was on 11:30 there's a more of a precedent it's the tonight show we were caretakers of the franchise so there was a lot that was different, but a lot, you know, but actually standing on the floor of a television show that's being shot in front of a live audience that that's not that much different, whether it's that or a sitcom or whatever, the cameras roll and you got to do what you do and then they go off, you know, and then you music plays and people clap. There were some folks uh, who worked on the show that were uh, friends of The Sound of Young America, past guests of The Sound of Young America. They were and no longer are? Yeah. Well, once from the, sh- well, the show's canceled, yeah. <laughs> you got to move on. You know the show got canceled, sure. right? Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> Crossed them off the list. Um, I have a friends list and an enemies list. Of and course. The friends, the friends all, the, what they have in common is they all have active television sure, programs. Sure, of course. Um, well, I hope you keep it on a dry erase board for easy, easy editing. And it was a very, it, it was a really intense thing. Uh, I mean, above and beyond the sort of the sort of Conan centric drama that we saw play out in the press, in the way that, say, um, uh, 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 Brian Stack, who's a who, who was a writer on the show, yeah, um, and uh, has been a guest on this show, he moved also, out. Also, frequent Frankenstein. Yes, we call him that too. <laughs> He um, he moved out to Los Angeles to mm-hmm. do this job. Um, a wife uh, and two children. A, a guy who's been a guest on this show twice, uh, the comedian Jimmy Pardo. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jimmy essentially, you know, had been a touring stand-up comic, uh, very successful at it, had hosted his own television programs, and sort of decided that he was gonna uh, that he was gonna take the gold watch and uh, work on The Tonight Show because it was The Tonight Show mm-hmm. uh, and because he had so much respect for all the people involved and in part because it was the same reason that uh, Brian Stack was willing to move to Los Angeles, yeah. which is, you know, you get handed the keys to the Cadillac and, you know, it's like the one thing you can count on yes. is The Tonight Show. And it's and, and it's a... Well, and Jimmy Pardo, for those who don't know, did the, the in-studio warm-up every day uh, and, and Brian Stack is a writer on the show. And yeah, that's, I mean, in in many ways, it's the same thing for me, because one could make the case that me going back to work for Conan was somehow a step backwards. And if somebody wants to say that, they can, all right, whatever. I mean, I, I don't have any problem. It is a, it's a, I don't think anybody is surprised to hear it's tough out there. And in comedy, it's tough out there. And as you get older, you start to appreciate these are great people. I like these people. I like this show. Okay, I'll stay here. I'm, I'm not so thrilled by different, you know, commotion and, and different colors flying before my eyes anymore. I'm, I'm more than happy to be here and be funny on TV and to, 
to be able to do it. Because also, you, you don't always get the chance, and you never know when that chance is going to get taken away. So you you feel you feel the need to kind of make your mark as long as you can make it. And and you know, and as you get older, I think your ego diminishes. Hopefully, ideally, you know. How did you um, how did you find out that uh, stuff was going down? Um, that everything was changing. Uh, there was just a day where we all heard that there was a plan to move our show to twelve oh five and Jay Leno to eleven thirty. And that we would still have, it would still be, we would still have the Tonight Show. It would just move, bump the whole schedule back a half an hour and Jay would have a half an hour show at 11.30. And uh, if I remember correctly, that was on a Thursday. And then, you know, and there was lots of, well, what are we going to do about that? And I think it was on Tuesday, the following Tuesday, that uh, Conan released the statement that, that he wouldn't agree to that, that he wasn't going to agree to that, that he felt that it was the 12, the Tonight Show doesn't start at 12 o'clock. Just that sort of basic, simple point. Um, so like that. What was it like in between in, those, in that intervening four days? Tense and weird and uh, it's hard for me to say because I have a, a pretty amazing powers of uh, compartmentalization, uh, Bill Clinton-like, I would say, and uh, and also of just kind of uh, denial. I really do think that I would, I'm going to be good when it all goes down and the apocalypse happens and there's some sort of master blaster <laughs> making people duel in the streets for rat meat. I, I think I will be able to adjust. And so I knew that there was this possibility happening. And I think also, too, I had had the opportunity, unlike many of the people that work for Conan and have been working for Conan consistently for many, many years, I had had the experience of being on a show that initially seemed, everything seemed great, everybody loved it, it was going well, the numbers were pretty good, and so you start to fantasize about the success of this thing and all the wonderful wonderful accolades and the money you'll be spending on ridiculous things. And then and seemingly in a day, it turns, oh, it's not so good. You get a phone call like, oh, it doesn't look good. Like I, I, and I on Andy Richter Controls the Universe, the show I did on Fox, we, it really did seem to turn in like a day or two from great demos, numbers look good, uh, and then it's not looking so good. What? <laughs> I thought it was doing great. Um, so it was. It was very strange. It was very surreal. And you know, I mean, and also you sit there and you think. And I, I, I had the feeling of because there was so much attention on it, and now with the internet, every single you know, you can check for when something unfolds like that. You check can check every thirty minutes, and there's some new little nugget of horse droppings to you know disseminate and uh i do remember thinking uh being at the center of the of a historic showbiz scandal is 
pretty much like every other day. <laughs> there's just more to talk about. But it's certainly, you know, there's still, uh, you know, lukewarm Diet Coke and uh, uncomfortable backstage couches to try to take a nap on. <laughs> the thing the thing that I imagined during that period between when NBC made that uh, announcement, and it was kind of an announcement, uh, that they were going to do these, uh, you know, this is switcheroo baloney. And uh, when uh, Conan's response was released publicly, um, is I just kind of imagined him like grabbing a legal pad and a pen being like, I'll be in my office. And then going into like a secret office behind his regular office, maybe yeah. just like holding up with some Ovaltine and just frantically scribbling it. Yeah. On a piece of paper. Well, it was, I think it was, it was an overnight thing. It was done at night at his house. And, um, but it it was, it certainly, I certainly felt after, after he read it to us and, and it was released, uh, which happened almost simultaneously, I felt like, well, he is a pretty good writer. Because <laughs> if you, I mean, I imagine it's somewhere still on the internet. It's really, it's it's the kind of expression of thought and feeling that I know I envy. <laughs> I look at it and I just think, oh, if I had been in the same situation, it would be three times as long and half as funny. <laughs> What was it like when when he read that out loud? Because it sort it was it was it was an amazing expression. It was also um, it also had in, in sort of the dual purpose of um, of sort of rallying the troops to stand up to the man, and also quite probably being like, "Well, I decided we're all quitting." <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I don't. I mean. I just I told him that I was very proud of him, and it, there was a definite feeling of what next. But I think that he, when he, when he made that statement, I don't think that there was a lot of hope that um, it would somehow come out our way. I think that it was pretty much assumed that it was going to end up the way that it ended up. And I also think that uh, the decision was made because had we gone along with everything, there was no reason to really believe that we would somehow in the future be supported. Uh, there, It seemed to signal a kind of a lack of support that there just seemed to be writing on the wall that the there was not that it was probably one way or the other we were going to not be supported you know what was it like to uh work um and make the show when it was already sort of fait accompli that yeah well it was ex- it, in some ways it was exciting and liberating but also sad and weird and uh already kind of almost in a in a involuntary way some kind of gr- mass grieving process began 
but it also made it hard when you actually had to fill in the slots where the jokes go to talk about much else, you know, as sort of, you know, sitting calmly in a house that's on fire and talking about the day's headlines. You have to pay attention to the fact that the curtains are going up, you know. Uh, so it was – it. It became like I there was a I remember there was a day where I wrote a bit that I just did because we were all we were something like nine minutes under and I said oh you know what I kind of have an idea I guess I'll sit down and write it <laughs> write it down and uh, it was you know at eight away three minutes and it was, it was like oh all right well now we're only six minutes under and I felt so useful that day you know <laughs> um, so it was it was hard though that was one thing I remember about those shows is that we went in under as we say. That we were we were lacking material because there were so many jokes to make about the actual situation that it was kind of hard to then throw in a Lady Gaga joke or what you know I mean it just seemed it, it just stuck out crazy though her outfits may be <laughs> yes very crazy like a fox <laughs> um. When uh, Conan O'Brien reappears in the world of mass media, whether it's as um, uh, a host of a television program on the FX network, uh, Television Bake Fresh Daily, Mm. um, whether it's as a Fox late night host or as the series, a host of, you know, a series of WrestleMania like direct to movie theater, whatever the form it is that this thing takes. um, Are you are you like in? Have you like have have you <laughs> are you like have you have you have you do you feel like you've you've tied yourself to that ship and so far yeah it seems to be like a well I I mean all joking aside yeah I mean I having having come along to do the Tonight Show I just feel like I'm in the middle of a story that hasn't finished yet and I need to go along I it's it it would just be. Well, now, for purely selfish reasons, I want to see how it how it pans out, and I want to be a part of the panning out. I want to see what happens. You know, I want to be there for you know to see how this all works out. Um, And and also, there was a a very unnatural ending to it, and I you know, so I do feel like there it was unnatural, and I need to sort of continue seeing where it all leads. You're still under contract to uh, NBC. I am. Are they having you do odd jobs or anything no, like that? nothing at all. I had to, I mean, I wouldn't even be able to get on the premises. I had to turn in my ID. <laughs> I had to turn in my parking pass. They won't so even let I, you work in the studio yeah, store. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't, probably no, di- I can, and then, quite frankly, no discount. You no can't discount. even buy the DVDs of Community. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For a reduced price. I do still have, though, and and maybe someday I'll auction it off at a school auction or something, um, my Olympic credentials, my Vancouver (laughs) Olympic credentials. uh, They sent those, and it was – and for my affiliation, because, you know, it would say NBC Sports or NBC News. For mine, it says – Unspecified. <laughs> <laughs> so I have unspecified press credentials to the, you know, to the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the San Diego. Well, thank America. you for having me. Andy Richter uh, is uh, 
an actor, writer, comedian, uh, television broadcaster. You might have seen him alongside Kelly Ripa on the uh, Andy Richter and Kelly show. Um, <laughs> he's just about to head out on tour uh, with the Conan O'Brien Traveling Roadshow, and from there on to uh, television points beyond. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wallace. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Julia Smith. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download any of our shows absolutely 100% for free. You can also subscribe to our podcast for free, either at MaximumFun.org or in iTunes. And if you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Humber College, offering a two-year diploma program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com.